0: Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Batak, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine at WebMD. Each year on the 1st of December, the world commemorates World AIDS Day to show support for people living with HIV and to remember those who've died from AIDS-related illnesses. We're a little over 40 years past the very first scientific report about this mysterious emerging infectious disease which later became known as Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. And right now, we're close to four years out from the earliest reports of COVID-19. Even with major differences between the two viruses, there are a lot of interesting pieces to look at when it comes to how society, communities, medicine, science came together and in some ways didn't come together to combat some of the same problems finding a treatment developing vaccines looking for a cure all of the misinformation we're dealing with stigma so today i'd love to talk about what we can learn from over 40 years of work with hiv being diagnosed with hiv or aids has a very different meaning than it did just two decades ago an HIV diagnosis no longer means you'll have a compromised lifespan. So today we'll talk about what got us here with HIV, what's next, what's the potential to eradicate the disease altogether, and what can we learn from our experiences with HIV, with COVID-19, to come together to face any new infectious disease risks. First, let me introduce my guest who will guide us through the subject, Dr. Michael Sag. Dr. Sag is a physician and prominent HIV AIDS researcher at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Alabama, Hearsink School of Medicine. Dr. Sag has participated in many studies of antiretroviral therapy, as well as novel treatments for opportunistic infections. He's published over 700 articles in peer reviewed journals, And directed the first inpatient studies of seven of the 30 antiretroviral drugs currently on the market. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you.
0: So, before we jump into my questions, let's start with you. I'd love to ask about your health discovery. What was your aha moment that shifted your focus to studying HIV/AIDS?
1: Yeah, for me, it was around 1992. We had been dealing with this infection for over a decade, and we still didn't understand what was causing the immune deficiency. It seemed like somebody got infected with the virus. We could measure P24 antigen, which was a marker of the virus, but it seemed to go to non-detectable status only to pop up later. So it wasn't clear how the immune system was being damaged. In June of 1992, I got a phone call from Jeff Lifson at Redwood City, California, Gene Labs, and he described a process whereby he could quantify viral load using PCR. That was not possible before. I sent him some samples, about 80 of them, of all different stripes of HIV infection and some people who were not infected. Four weeks later, The results came back. The people with acute infection had huge amounts of virus in the millions of copies. Those who had asymptomatic infection was two to three orders of magnitude less. Those with advanced aids started approaching a million copies or so. And what was really important was that the virus was detectable at every stage, no matter when the person got infected. In other words, they could be asymptomatic or they could be advanced aids and you could still detect the virus. And it was clear that the virus was replicating daily. And that onslaught of replication was really what was causing the immune deficiency and the recognition that if we could stop that process, we might be able to get HIV under control. And that's, in fact, what actually happened.
0: That's amazing. So I'd love to just go back even farther From this discovery to when this virus was first being experienced by people who didn't even know what was happening to them. Forty percent of people born after the mid 80s don't even understand the impact of what HIV was doing back at that time. So can you tell us and talk us through some of that history?
1: Sure. So back in the 70s, individual folks were coming in with this mysterious illness. Typically, they were young men. They'd arrive in the ER with a weird opportunistic infection, but it only happened sporadically, a case or two at different emergency rooms all over the country. Nobody quite knew what it was, but it didn't reach the level of awareness until 1980 to 81. And then all of a sudden, there were so many people coming in, it couldn't be ignored shockwaves went out mostly through the gay community because people started having friends coming down with this disorder. And a lot of them over the next six to 12 months after they became sick were dying. So for those who didn't live through that era, I think the best way to imagine it was think of your five closest friends in life right now, And imagine three of them had become sick with this new strange disease and died. Three of your five closest friends are now dead, and you knew that you might be next. It was a horror story for patients. It was tough on physicians, much like we all struggled through COVID. As it emerged, we didn't know quite what to do about it. It's that kind of feeling. It was a really dark time. Imagine taking care of people, not knowing what in the world is going on, and trying to get them through the opportunistic infection or whatever it was, and just scratching your head, what is happening here? It doesn't make any sense. These are otherwise healthy 25, 30, 35-year-old people, and they're getting these horrible diseases that were killing them. So it was a nightmare. And if we relate it to COVID, it was days after the first cases were reported or just were emerging from some reports out of China that we knew the virus. And not only that, within a couple of weeks after the structure of the virus was reported in January 2020, the first candidate vaccines were being prepared. We don't even have a vaccine against HIV now. And in 11 months, we ended up with a vaccine against COVID. So dramatically different.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that transition where HIV went from a death sentence to now a chronic condition.
1: Well, I started off the episode here talking about viral load, and that was, to me, the inflection point. Because now we not only understood how the virus causes disease, but we got a strategy, a game plan, that if we could stop replication of the virus, that would help people come out of the threat of dying of AIDS. And that's precisely what happened. So we started... Using viral load in 1993 to test the new medicines, learning that in combination, using more than one drug at a time, we could suppress the virus to really undetectable levels, meaning we shut down replication for good. And what happened then is that it's like the immune system woke up and we had learned that the virus is being produced at one to 10 billion copies per day. That onslaught every day caused immune suppression in the immediate moment. You take that onslaught away and the immune system wakes up. And you and I would know this as sometimes iris, the immune reactivation inflammatory syndrome, where the immune system gets awakened so much that it starts to attack stuff that it had fallen asleep and sort of let happen four to six weeks into the treatment, you'd start seeing this iris syndrome. But the point is that with the virus suppressed, the immune system now can function. Relatively normally. And so we now see that as long as people are on their therapy, their viral load is suppressed to the fullest extent with usually two or three drug therapy, they not only can live a normal lifespan, as you alluded to at the beginning, but they don't transmit the virus to other people. So it's a huge two for one. So when I see some patients today who are newly diagnosed and they come in and they're questioning whether they should be on the medicines or maybe they're in three or four months and they're not taking the medicines, I just calmly but firmly say, let's throw ourselves back into the 1980s and imagine that we were living in that time because I did live at that time with patients. And I asked myself, what would that patient in 1987, what would they give to have access to these medicines today? And they would give anything for that. People were desperate. And now that we have those available, It is a miracle of sorts that we are able to prevent AIDS, control HIV, and let people live normal lifespans. I'm basically an internist in my practice now. I'm not really an ID doc because everybody's HIV is well-controlled for the most part.
0: That's amazing. Viral load is essentially when it's replicating so heavily the load that's in your blood system. Right. So that's what you're checking for. We know that if you stop taking the medication, then the virus is still latent in some of the cells in your body. So that's why it's so important to take these medications, because you're not necessarily cured. You've just come to this state where there is no virus that is in your blood system. Your immune system is woken up and you're not able to transmit it to somebody else. Can you help me unpack that piece a little bit?
1: Sure. 99.9% of the virus that you detect in viral load was produced in the last 24 hours. When you use antiretroviral therapy, it stops all replication immediately, and the viral load drifts down because the cells aren't producing new virus anymore. And it's that virus that's the immunosuppressive agent. As you allude to, though, even though you're taking that medicine every day, there's less than 1% of the virus that's hiding out inside of cells in a latent state. And when you take the treatment away, the antiviral therapy away, that latent virus is like an ember that can reignite the fire. And within several weeks, boom, they're right back to the same viral load, roughly, that they had before, and then the damage starts to happen again. So that's why the daily administration of the medicine is critical to maintaining. In the future, we're going to have longer-acting medicines, already have some now maybe a sub-Q injection every six months. So you don't have to take a pill every day, but that's where we're headed. But that's why taking the medicine every day is so important, because when you stop, the latent virus is an ember that can reignite the flame.
0: That's a great, great analogy. So I'd love to ask you about the concept of U equals U. So undetectable equals untransmittable. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. When the virus is suppressed by antiretroviral therapy to undetectable levels, we know through a number of studies now that while the virus is that low, there isn't transmission from one person to another. It takes a viral load of roughly 500 to 1,000 copies per mil for the thought of transmission to even happen. And when people are on successful therapy, their viral loads are often less than 50 copies. So, well below the amount of inoculum, the amount of virus that it would take to transmit from one person to another. Therefore, undetectable equals untransmissible. U equals U.
0: And then my next question is, so once you've achieved that status, how often should you be tested in order to make sure that you're maintaining that U equals U?
1: In most practices, we check viral load every six months. If there's something that's come along that makes us concerned that doses of medicines were missed, they didn't get delivered to the person's house and they went three weeks without taking medicine, or some people struggle with substance use disorders. And if they sort of go on a binge or they find themselves deep into methamphetamine use or opioid use, a lot of times they won't be able to keep up with or they don't keep up with taking their medicines. We always recheck then. And then, of course, there are people who fall out of care, who they stop coming into the clinics. They resurface, say, two years after their last appointment. And of course, we're going to check it then. And more times than not, the viral load is back. The good news is we can usually get it right back under control just by re prescribing often the same regimen, and they end up getting back to an undetectable viral load.
0: And what's concerning for you when it comes to misdoses? Is it on the order of? A week, two weeks, somebody who's missing a few days worth of doses.
1: Yeah. So the concern is, is that when the medicine is stopped, the amount of drug in the bloodstream, by definition, starts to decay and that protection of viral replication begins to disappear. If that happens all of a sudden, it's usually about two to four weeks for those residual viruses inside the cells, those chronic embers, we called it, for them to reignite a fire. It's usually two to four weeks. But hypothetically, it could happen sooner. So we like to minimize that time, but that would be a time to recheck viral load, obviously, because we want to make sure it hasn't come back. The biggest risk when people are, let's say, taking medicine intermittently, like Take it a day, skip four days, take it another day. It's just like any other bacterial infection. You can breed resistant viruses, and then you've lost whatever drugs are in that regimen, and that creates treatment challenges down the road because you've lost some of the arrows in your quiver. You can't use those drugs anymore.
0: So where are we in terms of the future when it comes to completely eradicating the disease?
1: I think there's two fronts. One is biologic and one is in society. So eradicating HIV from society would mean that every person who's infected with HIV goes on treatment, their virus goes undetectable, and by definition, there's no more transmission. If we sustain that for a long enough period, the virus disappears in terms of being around. And and that's a tall order because it means finding everyone, testing regularly, finding people and getting who might be testing positive, getting them into care, keeping them into care, keeping them on treatment, tall order.
0: And access in low and middle-income countries.
1: All of that, social determinants of care are, are critical. The other area of eradication is actual cure. And what that means quite simply is that those latently infected cells that I alluded to, those embers, We have to find a way to see where they are inside of which cells, eliminate those cells selectively, like with a smart bomb, and then you eradicate the virus completely from that individual. That's been done and selected like a handful of patients around the world over the last 15 years with bone marrow transplants, aggressive chemo, not to get rid of HIV, but to treat a cancer. And oh, by the way, as they were doing that, their HIV was quote unquote cured.
0: And then what about vaccine development? Why is it so difficult for HIV? And where are we with regard to progress?
1: In a word, it's variants. So we've gotten used to that term with COVID. And we watch those variants emerge about every three or four months. In HIV, when the untreated person, when their immune system is exposed to the initial variant that they got infected with, that virus can mutate within days, not weeks, not months, days. that immune system response and you get this cat and mouse game, immune system responds like the cat and the mouse changes its outer coat and has an escape variant. And the fact that there are so many variants that can exist even within a single individual, much less might be transmitted from one person to another, you've got to come up with a vaccine that is broadly neutralizing, that works against all these possible variants. And so far, we've not been able to crack that egg.
0: I think that we as health professionals, that ultimately our goal is to protect the health of our patients and the public. Why this trust that we've spent so many years developing is slowly sort of falling apart? And what can we do better with our messaging? And who needs to be the messenger? Does it need to be people in communities that really can speak the same language, can message to the fears and concerns of the people that they live with.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The way I like to describe it to people is that we can totally relate to a doctor talking to their patient and understanding that when somebody gets admitted to the hospital, initially what they might be told of what the doctor thinks is going on can change pretty dramatically as information comes back. To me, a public health official is taking care of, like the doctor to patient, is taking care of a population as their patient. And just like data comes in and changes what we know, and that message gets communicated to the population, we need to roll with that and understand that because somebody said something early on in the epidemic before all the information was in, they were just trying to protect the public based on knowledge of prior epidemics. It's the art of medicine, and it's how we operate every day as physicians. As public health spokespeople, we are the physician for the population, and somehow that got lost.
0: Wow, I have learned so much about where we came from, how we got here, and what we need to learn about ourselves and trust in science for future infectious diseases, because this is not going to be the last time that we are going to experience a a worldwide new emerging threat.
1: Absolutely. And we need to restore our trust in our public health system. We got to regain our trust in the scientists and the people giving us our messages, because otherwise that next wave of the epidemic will swamp us.
0: I really thank you so much for your time. And as I close this episode, I'd love if you could give us a few bite-sized action items to empower our listeners to make any sort of small, sustainable change in their life based on all of your learnings.
1: I would say, number one, listen to public health officials. They are not there to trick you. Just like your doctors not there to trick you when you go in for care, the public health official is also like... The doctor of the population. Number two, monitor yourself for symptoms. If you have symptoms, get tested and find out what you're dealing with. And finally, celebrate the science. Celebrate the fact that we have all these advances. Took 40 years to get HIV under control. We can get COVID under control and one-tenth, one-hundredth of that time, actually, if we really put our mind to it. Thank
0: you so, so much for being with us today. We've talked with Dr. Michael Sag about HIV, the history, how it relates to COVID, and what we can learn from the 40-year experience we had with HIV to protect ourselves today from new and emerging infectious disease threats. Number one lesson, listen to your public health professional, because just like your doctor's trying to take care of you in the exam room, your public health official is trying to take care of everyone in your community. I love that. Thank you for that analogy. To find out more information about Dr. Sag, check out his book, Positive One Doctor's Personal Encounters with Death, Life, and the US Healthcare System. For more information about HIV, please check our show notes where we'll have links to information on WebMD. Thank you so much for listening please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast@webmd.net. at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.